0: Welcome to our next episode of the 5 Moments of Need Performance Matters Series. This is Bob Mosier, one of the many co-hosts you'll meet throughout this series. So friends, are you trying to learn more about the 5 Moments of Need? Maybe how to design for them, implement for them, measure them, and even sell them as an approach to your enterprise? Well, in the Performance Matters Series, we will help you better understand the theory and best practices behind this powerful methodology and offer proven ways to put the five moments of need into practice. Okay, friends, welcome back to another Performance Matters podcast series. Bob Moser here, one of your co-hosts. And once again, I am joined by my dear colleague and friend, Dr. Khan Gottfriedson. Khan, welcome.
1: Thank you, Bob. It's always good to be with you.
0: <laughs> Great to have these discussions, my friend. And we're going to end the year here with something that we've been struggling with uh, in some ways uh, throughout this year, And that's this idea that we're really still having a difficult time, Con, discerning true learning or the transfer of learning, the ownership of learning from the performer back versus training them. And and the responsibility we carry in the L&D group to do and own some of that training is part of the five moments, of course. But the distinction is still kind of blurs in the industry between the two, I think.
1: I agree, Bob. We've had a myopic view of it, I think, for forever, where learning for so many organizations is about knowledge acquisition or individual skill mastery, and it's all centered in making it stick, you know, retention of that. So we work toward mastery. When I was in graduate school, my mentor, Grant Harrison, said, you know, it's one thing to master all these little pieces of things. But at some point, a person has to put it all together mm. in, into real performance, into really doing something that putting it all together too often after a class is like putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. It's tough, especially in the workflow. You know?
0: Well, And, and let's, be, let's be clear, Tom, we, we're, we're huge advocates of formal training, right? Sure. And, and, and we also try to use that word on purpose because we think vocabulary is important. And we do think that the formal side of the five moments and the, and the resources and things we build in that domain are truly training assets. We I don't know if we think they're learning assets. I, I think the lear, learning and support assets are more in the workflow and you know apply change and solve and things. Yeah. And so we are big advocates in, in our own work. We always have some degree of formal learning that initiates the journey towards people becoming sure. competency because. You know, in past podcasts, based on critical skills, you should all know, know what that means. There are clearly things that warrant and should be trained, right? But te- tell us a little bit more about that jump, though, to transfer.
1: Yeah, well, the question that we have to ask, where are all these concepts and skills that we initiate, that we teach initially, where are they integrating that into the existing experience of learners? And how are we facilitating that? How are we intentionally making that happen? Well, right now, what happens is we throw learners over the learning fence, you know, they finish a course, whether it's e-learning or whatever it is, and then they're on their own to take all those pieces, put Humpty Dumpty together again, and navigate and adapt that to meet their environment in an integrated way. So it's, you know, triggering past experience, bringing new experience in, integrating those experiences into a, a more broad experience-based because it's all about experience, ultimately, experience in the flow of work. And so that transfer stage today is dicey. You know, mm-hmm. It's challenging because we typically don't provide the support that a learner who's now trying to become a performer mm-hmm. can navigate that transfer stage Rapidly and successfully, and recover if there are mistakes so that they can fulfill that integration requirement and begin to perform in the workplace and learn through experience.
0: Yes, we always said, Kami, workflow analysis is so key first because we don't, we have never historically understood that. And, and that's the context of transfer. And, and then building for that workflow, building the digital coach, building the EPSS again first is such a fundamental shift in how we approach train, transfer, sustain. And of course, ironically, train comes first in the journey of those three words, but we build from transfer and sustain back, and then training is whatever is necessary. You know, we, We've got to stop thinking that our work ends at the door. Being, That's right. Being in a digital door of an LMS or a concrete door of a virtual something or face-to-face. I'm probably going to get blasted for this, but I, I wish we'd never called it e-learning. I think it's e-training. Yeah. And again, I, I, what I want to be careful of is people have historically tagged us as bashing that word or that training is a four-letter word of instruction, even though it's a lot more letters than that. We, we, it's not our intent at all. What we're trying to do here is for the learner and for the journey that they're on to become performers, that we put our deliverables in the right place and in the right perspective. Don't ask them to do things that they really can't do. Training was never a true transfer contextualizing tool because it does not live in the workflow. It's not used or consumed while working. We're going to talk about that in just a bit. And so that's why this whole design of the digital coach and distinguishing learning from training is so important. It's not just potato, potato. They they really do have different intents, right?
1: I agree. You know, training and learning is a two-way street. Training is what, what we do. And we know there are fundamental principles that we can employ in training someone to do something and, and, and helping them understand as they do that. But then the learner has a responsibility too, right? Yeah. Learning approaches is different than training and both have to be there. And then both trainer and learner, You know, the training efforts that we make and the learning efforts on the learner to have that work it can't do it all in th- those events. Yep, it just can't. You've got to extend that through that transfer stage where you integrate newly gained experience with existing experience and uh, develop expertise.
0: Well, Connie, you know, and with with a, a well designed digital coach, the training event takes on a whole different meaning. Oh, yeah. it's, yeah. it's teach to fish, not feed them one. Right, and and so in, often in our design, we trade off content which is not critical, for practice and the skills of in the safe environment, which is one of the most powerful parts of training, they fail forward and they get the confidence and the self-efficacy to use a digital coach while working when they're contextualizing and trying to practice and fail sometimes to do better. So that becomes where the training event takes on even a more important role than it has in the past.
1: Yeah, the most critical training outcome is for those that were training to become learners. So, because, and, and then to provide them the support they need to be able to learn beyond us. And you and I know that at the heart of that is to learn in the workflow while they're doing their work. That is the most important training outcome that any great trainer can achieve. It's the gift of all gifts to help someone that we are training. Become a learner and be enabled with all that that person needs to continue learning beyond us.
0: So let's speak to this thing about stickiness. We hear this a lot, Khan, in the industry about, you know, we want things to stick. I think what we're talking about here is we would argue that that may be, if it ever was, frankly, an appropriate word in in the world we live in today, pandemic and and hopefully getting into a little bit post pandemic, whatever that means stickiness is really not, it, it almost can be harmful frankly, uh, right? right
1: if there's no change, sticky. Right. But if, if things are changing, if, if content is changing, information is changing, uh, the way we do things changes, then sticky becomes sticky. you know because yeah. I have to unlearn something that becomes deeply rooted in that process of unlearning to relearn and to make something else stick in its place is a real challenge. That's why it's so wonderful today. We know from Betsy Sparrow that it's actually more effective for people to know and have stick where information, how to get to what they need, rather than having that information stuck in their brain.
0: Well, it's, you know, it's the Einstein quote about, right? I never, I never, yeah. learned, my, I never learned my phone number because I could look it up. And yeah. so we yeah. talked even before we got into this podcast about the ridiculous burden on healthcare today in keeping up with these variants and all that's changing stickiness is hurtful because the rules change as does the variant mutate so my ability to be kept current in the workflow to generalize what i know not memorize what i know and then use an embedded digital coach which we've seen done in in several hospitals frankly across the world that it lets the doctor and nurses and techs and everyone else remain current in a very tumultuous world by contextualizing and having in the workflow while they are working the information that keeps them at the detail level up to date.
1: You know, I saw a terrifying research report once on nursing, and it was on confidently held misinformation. Mm. That is the degree in which people were confident in information that was outdated. And acting confidently upon it, that it was terrifying. And that's the danger, right? If I don't have the ability to keep current, and I'm stuck on information that is out of date, that can be costly.
0: Yeah, they're, they're unconsciously incompetent. One of my favorite things that you, <laughs> I've taken from you. And, and so this ability to keep them, to push to them this information in a way that they can remain so uh, is literally life and death nowadays. So Con, this whole thing about the power of the workflow, another thing that, that I think the training versus learning mindset or training versus performance mindset that we hear all the time is that I know I was wired in my early days to extrinsically motivate my learners because we took them out of the workflow. We put them in a the classroom. We even put them in any learning event, which, which cognitively takes you out of the workflow. And so we, we make up these scenarios. We hope, we hope they're close to real, and many of them are, but they're not work. We have this idea that when we move things into the workflow, we have to use things like leaderboards. We have to use things like really powerful graphics or richly edited or produced videos. And yeah. the reality is what we've learned is that when a learner moves to the moment of apply, when that nurse is on the floor and a COVID patient comes in, they are intrinsically motivated By the workflow to perform well, they don't need a leaderboard to want to remain current on the latest COVID standards.
1: And you know, Bob, what is vital for us all to realize when you are learning while working, when you are in the workflow and you're learning while doing it, transfer is immediate. Yes. Versus if I learn out of the workflow, now I've got to take whatever scenario, whatever I had, and I've got to figure out how to transfer that. But if I'm in the workflow, and I, I come up with a gap in my learning. You know, this is the, the ultimate gap learning. I need help to complete something right now. I am highly motivated. Yep. Then I move and close that gap. Transfer yep. is immediate.
0: And kind of it's the pyramid, right? It's the min, it's a minimalist, yeah. it's a minimalist model, which is again for our L and D friends out there listening, and I'll be the first to admit that is completely 180 from how I was taught. In this lesson, you will learn, basically said, we have got to show our learners why they should care. And yeah. you know what's coming and anticipatory stuff and all this kind of stuff. I get that, but the reality is when someone is in the workflow doing things, they got the what's in it for me. Yeah, they are they are in it yeah. and so and so this idea that we keep hearing over and over again is no, but but you guys, my e-learnings in the workflow, my lxps in the workflow, our SharePoint sites in the workflow, availability is not what we're talking about here, contextualizing and how close you move the stimulus to the response is what we're talking about here. So if I cognitively step away, two clicks, five screens to a SharePoint site to read a 20-page document, I have left the workflow. Right. right. And I
1: take a 50-minute or even a 10-minute e-learning course. I still have to figure out now how does what I just learned fit in my situation right now? I still have to traverse that transfer minefield.
0: One of my, one of my favorite stories you tell, and if you wouldn't mind, again, I think you actually seen an earlier podcast, but it's so apropos here. Tell us a story about that ID person that really wanted practice.
1: I was teaching a group of uh, new instructional designers, and I shared with them this remarkable online help system that was just laid over the top of the software. And so it was actually intelligent enough to allow you and to guide you as you actually did your job. It wasn't a simulation. It was guiding you through the software to help you do your job. And we, we have a lot of that today. And so I was sharing that and this ID goes, well, what about practice? And I go, well, if I am moving through and actually doing what I'm asked to do at work in this software application, and it's helping me and guiding me, that's my practice. And he goes, I don't get it. You need practice. And he, he could not step back. For him, practice was this thing that we do that is outside of the flow of work. But every time I do my job, I'm practicing. Yep. That's, that's why medical folks call the work they do practice. <laughs> yeah. <You know, laughs> my son is a pediatrician. He has a pediatric practice. When we do our job, that is the best, most powerful practice there is.
0: Well, you know, it's 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 back for me again. It's the good old Maslow and other things and you know and Skinner and such it's a stimulus response i mean if you you can practice by stepping out into a simulation or in some cases i get it a safe environment but to your point i have to then make the cognitive jump back but i can also practice in the context of doing my actual work and sure there'll be some failure there'll be some struggles but we all know when you come to the other end of either practice you've learned something that you didn't before you started it. But the big difference in having something available in versus doing something while, is that when I emerge from work practice, workflow practice, I have one completed an actual task and so work is done. But secondly, I learned it in as close to the bell and the salivating dog as I can possibly get because I actually did it in the context of doing the work and emerged with a different level of encoding and ingraining, then leaving to a practice and having to jump back and do it that way.
1: I agree. So what happens there when you're in the flow of work and you're being supported and learning while working, what is really happening there is you're gaining real-time experience in the flow of work. And you're immediately integrating that experience with your previous experience. And therefore, you become more experienced. And that is real learning. We initiate learning, certainly, in these formal mechanisms, particularly when a skill, the impact of failure could be critical to catastrophic. We want to do that and make sure that folks can perform as safely as possible. But even then, in all cases, (laughs) until that learning hits the runway of the workflow and is operationalized in the workflow Real learning hasn't happened yet.
0: Well, and Con, this is why for me, it comes down to our last topic, which is, this is why we always argue the performance mindset versus training. If you approach your design with a performance mindset, you will prevent someone from drowning rather than teach them to swim. I I just posted an article up on LinkedIn that I wrote years ago about this very quandary. And if you go into your design fundamentally with an enablement mindset, that I'm going to, in the end, enable learners, not train them, not have them memorize stuff, not have things stick. Like we've gone through in this whole podcast. If it's an enablement model, then I will design a digital coach first. Because why wouldn't I? If, if I'm going for performance first, I wouldn't build a class first. I would build an enablement thing first, like a digital coach. And I, I was reading an article just recently that was kind of troubling to me. and It was about the burden that's falling on managers nowadays with the remoteness of their workers, the unbelievable turnover, the labor shortage, the ever-changing volatile world of COVID and how we're in work, we're out of work, workflows are changing. I mean, guys, you know the list. But my concern, Con, was the article pivoted on the fact that what they thought the solution was, was to make managers better coaches, make them better trainers. What troubled me about that is that is not an enablement model. That's hoping that this poor manager, who also, by the way, has work to be done, can carry the burden of keeping everyone current up to date and, and that they're all okay. What if we shifted that mindset to one of enablement where the job of the manager is to sure, you answer questions and so on, calm your, your employees down, you make sure they feel safe and you, I get all that. But the reality is the tip of the sword is that you constantly push them towards enabling the employee to stand self-reliant, to okay. be able to keep up with, a, with the craziness around them, not to wait till their manager does that, or be dependent on the organization to do that for them. I think it would put the entire approach to things today in a very different light.
1: It sure would. And it would transform those organizations because if you can offload the tactical work, then you open the door for the workforce to move to higher level processing and how Mm -hmm. they think and how they approach. So you have innovation, you have responsiveness, you have adaptiveness, you have all the things that we need to have, yeah. you know, that require higher order thinking. Managers, supervisors, leaders need to be able to focus in on higher order thinking rather than tied up trying to deal with the tactical work.
0: Yeah, as to the employees, right? I mean, yep. another thing we've heard a lot of, I did a recent conversation with LND folks, and there's a big push towards buddies nowadays, coaches. And again, friends, I, I want to be careful here. Khan and I do not think any of those are bad. What I would argue is I don't think they're the tip of the sword. The implication of the buddy systems that were described, Khan, were that they were owning the transfer of information. They were owning keeping people up. They were owning bringing new hires up to speed. What if the buddy was sure there to, to support and make people feel welcomed and so on? But what if the buddy's job was enablement? What if the buddy's job was to continually point the new hire back to this rich digital environment, digital coach, EPSS that we've made that helps them when they when their buddy's not around, which by the way, they're not most of the time, that person can become self-reliant and feel safe, feel competent in this new organization they've joined that they haven't even met anyone in yet. They haven't been face-to-face with their manager yet and may not be for who knows how long. So it really is a shift from this training. But again, that that buddy thing kind of was a training mentality, not a learning or enablement mentality.
1: In reality, if you think of the cost of that to an organization in terms of the workflow, if Mm. you have a buddy and so people are stopping their work to help other people and to teach and train other people, you know, that might look great from a trainer's perspective, but they're not thinking about the business You're not thinking about the cost to the business because that's costly to slow down a workforce that way. We have to do all that we can to ensure that people are free to be doing the work of the organization, to optimize that work time. And when you have other people being tied down, helping other people, and it has to happen sometimes, certainly, but if that's the primary model. The lost opportunity costs of work is significant.
0: So if, if we may kind of like to end this with one of my favorite quotes, you know, the guy, Eric Hoffer. Yeah. And it used to be a member in one of our slides. And yeah. I haven't, I hadn't thought about it for a long time until you and I were ramping up for this podcast and reflecting on this year. So let's send you all off with this quote, friends, and think about this going into the new year challenge yourself if this is really what you do, if this is the kind of person you help create in the organizations you support, the quote says, in a world of change, the learners, learners shall inherit the earth, while the learned shall find themselves perfectly suited for a world that no longer exists. (laughs) Do you train for the learned, or do you enable learners? Thanks, my friend. Great job, as always. We'll see you in the new year. All right. Thanks, everyone. Well, that's it for this episode of the Five Moments of Need Performance Matters series. We look forward to future conversations around how to best put the five moments of need into practice. We welcome your feedback and can be reached on Twitter using my Twitter handle at BMOSH, as well as our Five Moments of Need website, which is number5 momentsofneedcom We hope you're finding these helpful and will subscribe to future episodes. Have a great day, friends.